everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Okay, El, let's, uh, let's talk about women, women in Tanakh. Where, where, where does that phrase take you? Um, so, I mean, first of all, I think, I think about all my favorite women in Tanakh and all the women in Tanakh that I find so inspiring. Um, when I think about the phrase as a topic for a course, it's not exactly my choice of topic for a course. I like to teach stories and then to analyze the figures in the story as they appear. I think that the array of women in Tanakh present for us different women, different types of women, different, they have different roles in the story. Obviously, there are certain things that often arise with regard to women, like, for example, you know, their, their, their motherhood, right? That is definitely, uh, one important feature in Tanakh. But I think that the women in Tanakh, as we said, with regard to secondary characters, each story and each figure in each story has to be you know, treated in within the context of the story and not, you know, as some sort of type, right? You know, we, there's not one thing to say about women in Tanakh. That's- yeah, I think, I think also, you know, whenever I would, when I was younger and I saw these women in Tanakh courses offered and I'm, I'm not trying to belittle them, but it just assumes a perspective that isn't the perspective of Tanakh, meaning Tanakh doesn't come and mine itself for the women. It's sort of taking an external perspective for me and putting it on Tanakh. And I, I identify with what you're saying in the sense that I want to take the story and, and take the perspective that the Tanakh is assuming in that story. And from there, see how the women are presented. But I think often what happens when we sort of try and pull women out of the stories and identify them out of their context is that we lose the context and then we lose it in, in a positive and a negative sense sometimes. Sometimes losing the context and adding all different external commentaries can sometimes um, somewhat perfect or beautify the perception of the woman. And also sometimes it sort of does a little bit of uh, injustice to who she was in the story. So with that being said, and that hesitation in front of us, what we did want to do today uh, is to speak about a number of different women uh, and speak about what their role is in that um in, in the narratives themselves. Now, we are going to start from biblical women as mothers because it's a really significant role. And I think that Tanakh does a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal job at presenting women as they were in the society that they were living. And so, of course, a, a, a very central part of their role was certainly as mothers, like it still, I think, would be today for many women. Um, and from there, though, we'll move on to, on to other roles of women in Tanakh because they certainly occupy other roles than just a role of mother, than only a role of being a mother. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think our first mother that we're going to look at is sort of the archetypal mother, uh, of, uh, of, of Rachel. Uh, and Rachel, we of course meet her in her, in her meeting with Yaakov at the Be'er. Um, but her, her identity is really formed uh, vis-a-vis her identity in comparison also to Leah uh, and at the birth of the children. Um, I'm here really focusing on identity as mother, identity as wife. Of course, it comes earlier than Parakafted and Sefer Breshit. Um, but we have here her, the, the 
great irony of that story is that she is the beloved wife, but she cannot have children. And Leah is the less loved wife who, who is fertile. Uh, there's actually a very interesting phrasing where that God opens up the, the Rechem of Leah, which sort of gives us a sense that maybe she wasn't, or that there was an, an active um, effort on the part of God in order to give her these children. But certainly after that, maybe initial struggle, she is able to have children. Um, and so, and Rachel, you know, is, is tells her husband, Havali Banim, right? That if, if I, if I don't, if you don't give me children or sort of under things that Yaakov is going to be the one who can give her children, um, if I don't have children, her wife has no, has no value. And of course, the great irony is that Rachel also dies in childbirth. Okay. And so her motherhood really becomes the central feature, I think, of, uh, of her role as matriarch, both of her, of her identification with motherhood as the, as the purpose of her life at that point, right? right? I'm just good. I'm as good as dead. Um, which is, of course, a sentiment that I think many women and men who are struggling, uh, have, can identify sometimes with that, with that statement. Although Yaakov becomes angry with her for yes, that. Yes, he statement, becomes angry. Interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that after. Yeah, we're going to get yeah. to that in a little bit. He becomes angry with her. Exactly. Um, and she dies in childbirth. And then, of course, the beautiful irony that comes later is that we all remember Rachel as being uh, from Sefer Yirmiyahu, from Perakaf Aleph, where she is the one who's always watching out for Am Yisrael. She becomes the the eternal matriarch. And so she we, there's this tension between the wife and the mother in, in the Leah, Rachel, Yaakov triangle. And Leah, who is the less loved wife, is able to have children. Rachel is the more loved wife who is able to have children. And then when it comes to burying with Yaakov, Leah, the wife who is less loved, is buried with Yaakov, whereas Rachel is actually is not able um, for that to happen because she dies under different circumstances. So they sort of circle this this tension between the wife, mother, and their role vis-a-vis Yaakov and the children they have. Um, but Rachel... You know, it through the words of Yirmiyahu is sort of imbued with this eternal motherhood, um, the Em Shemivakal Banea, that she's con- always associated with her, with her motherhood, even though she only, quote unquote, only has, uh, has, has two children, um, and that are biologically hers. And so those two children, though, of course, reverberate and are very significant tribes themselves. But I think that her with her motherhood is a very, um, is a comp, is a fraught, it's a fraught topic, but it's one that I, that really div- sort of presents the cornerstone of her personality. Yeah, absolutely. I think she does pretty much nothing in her life that is not about obtaining children. And I'll just, you know, mention the linguistic link between all of those psukim that you brought together, which is that Rachel's first words are Havali Banim Vim Ain Meta Anochi. So there's Banim Ain, there's no children. And then she names her son in her last words, Ben-Oni, which rings with that ayin, even though it doesn't mean ayin, but Ben-Oni. And then, of course, in Yirmiyahu, right, it's Kobrama nishma Rachel mevaka al-baneha ki enenu, right? She's crying about these children that are not there. I would just add one other thing, which is that, you know, Rachel not being buried with Yaakov gives her the ability to, um, to, to, to advocate on behalf of her children as they're going off into Galut so that her quest for children 
ultimately becomes her strength. I think that that is really um, the beautiful thing about Rachel, because she devotes her her whole life to this quest for children, um, and it, and it becomes so all consuming for her, and she becomes almost that you know paradigmatic figure who is in search of motherhood. It becomes a great asset to Am Yisrael. Yeah, as their as their advocate. Yeah. Um, the, the other mother figure, I think that we, that we often describe as the, you know, the one who is searching in this, in this really almost, um, incessant quest or this really devoted quest for children is Hannah, right? And of course, she opens the book of Shmuel and she opens the book of Shmuel um, you know, with a story that reminds us very much of the Rachel and Leah story, right? Yeah, there is another, the right? There's another wife there. And she is deeply, deeply, um, steeped in misery such that her husband, Elkanah, actually says to her, you know, why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Right? Am I not better for you than seven sons? Right? Um, hello, Anochi, uh, I'm sorry. Ten sons, seven sons is yeah. in uh, root, right? Hello, Anochi Tovlach Masara Banim. Am I not better for you than ten sons? And the answer, of course, being no, nope. <laughs> right? no, right? Not the same thing. It's not the same thing. She she may appreciate very much her husband's love and his favor, um, but you know she feels that that children are um, something that is very much a part of, of, of what she's looking for and, and what she wants to fulfill in her life. And, you know, this, this quest for children leads her to take all sorts of, I think, maybe, you know, bold and, and even somewhat, um, unexpected, um, a- actions, right? So that, you know, she's, she introduces this new form of tefillah where she's so deeply immersed in her tefillah that her lips are moving, but not a sound is coming out. And Ailey sees her and he thinks that she's drunk, right? And she says, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm just deeply, sincerely, you know, authentically, um, turning inward. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my total aloneness turning to God. And she becomes for us the paradigm of how we pray. So that, as I said about Rachel, I think that for Hannah, her um, her quest for motherhood becomes her strength in that it teaches her how to daven. It teaches her how to find God within the you know, the deepest recesses of her soul. There's a wonderful midrash in the Gemara and Brachot uh, where the Midrash says it's like, you know, the, mash- the mashal, right? To the ani, to the poor person who is, um, who is, uh, uh, searching for bread, right? And he gets to this, uh, palace and in the palace they're having a feast and he knocks on the door and he says, can you give me bread? And they, they throw, you know, they slam the door in his face. And so he goes behind, you know, to the back door and he sneaks in through the kitchen and he makes his way straight to the throne room of the king and he, you know, prostrates himself before the king and says, you can't give me a piece of bread, right? And the idea, I think one of the ideas of this mashal is that, you know, Hana had no recourse, right? You know, both because she, you know, she had no support, both Elkanah and Eli deeply misunderstand her deep desire for children. And it was also maybe, instructive and comforting for people who are actually, for women who are struggling. Yeah. Of that yeah. difficulty of others to understand. Yeah, absolutely. But that she realizes that the only one who can truly, not just understand her, but can truly resolve her, her, her difficulty is God. And so it creates an 
extraordinary bond between Chana and God that translates into becoming the template of all tefillah. We right. base our tefillah on her, which I think is extraordinary. We base our tefillah on a woman and her desperate and and deep, authentic quest for children. I think that Rachel, the image of Rachel from Yermio, is also an image to a certain degree of tefillah, meaning that image of Rachel, right? That's it's not it's not the same exact definition used for them, but through both of the this struggle of of infertility, the idea of tefillah really comes to the fore. Obviously for for Hannah also in, in a halachic sense, but uh, but I think it's a very powerful point that their their motherhood may be the precipice of their identity, but the the result of it is a, a connection to God and a, and a deep tefillah that's expressed. Yeah, and that from that point is where we are meant to draw our strength for for prayer. I yeah. think it's a a, a wonderful uh, image or or idea. What do you uh, what do you think about Ruth and motherhood? Meaning, she's a mother in the national sense. Okay, meaning obviously that's one of the main points of the Megillah is for us to see where David comes from and that she is, you know, the the Emshel Malchut, that she's the the matriarch of the monarchy. But throughout the narrative, I would say it's much more of a marriage story than it is a story about motherhood. Right, that's sort of stuck in there at the end, but. Uh, and she's so much also not a mother that she doesn't even care for her child. I Meaning the child is taken from her and cared for by Naomi and, you know, with the comments of the other women. So I don't know if I look at her as a mother. I look at her though as a, I think I look at her more as a wife than as a mother. Yeah. I would even say, I think it's a chesed story. I think she's most interested not in Boaz and not even in marriage and not you know, necessarily in children, but in helping Naomi, mm-hmm. in whatever helps Naomi. The, the word ahav only appears once in the story, and it's about Ruth's love for Naomi. It's not about Ruth's love for Boaz or Ruth's love for her child. So I would agree with you that it's, it's, it's less a motherhood story. But that having been said, I do think it's interesting. First of all, Ruth is, of course, called Ima Shel Machut. As you said, she has a role as a in national Chazal, mother. In Chazal, that's not in the Supreme, Right, yeah. the mother of kingship, just in Chazal, correct? Um but also, I think it's really interesting that at the two points in biblical history where Am Yisrael seems on the brink of despair and destruction, that it's the quest for motherhood which uh, becomes that kind of latent spark that enables people to have hope. Right, referring to Mitzrayim, to the women Absolutely. in Egypt, and to the story of Ruth. Ruth and Chana. Uh, right. The two stories that pull us out of mm-hmm. Sefer Shoftim, out mm-hmm. of the kind of, you know, cataclysm, cataclysm that is at the end of Sefer Shoftim, um, are two stories about this kind of quest, this determination to pull through, even though things seem so dismal, so bleak. Yeah, I think we could say in a positive way, there's something utterly irrational about their behaviors, right? And it really goes against any expectation that we have for them. But it's people, in this case, the women for the sake of children or potential children who are able to make take those leaps, right? It's to take a leap in something that's, you can't see, you can't even feel yet, you don't even know what it will be, but it's that 
it's that faith in the fact that life will come and will renew itself that I think is is being broadcasted through the women here. Yeah. I mean, you know, women are really willing to do bold and courageous things. I think we especially see that in the Mitraim story where you have the midwives who are willing to defy the most powerful man in the world. You have, you know, Moshe's mother, Moshe's sister, and even Bat Paro herself, all of whom are willing to defy the social order and, and the, 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 you know, reigning power in order to bring life into the world. You know, it's, it's not, I, I think that the etymological relationship between the word rechem and the word rachamim should be noted here as well, which is that, you know, the womb is an incubator, not just for a child, but for human compassion. Doesn't mean that the womb necessarily breeds it in everyone, but that it is that the idea of bringing life into the world is meant to create humans that have compassion and and you know even in the animal kingdom at large you know that is definitely something which is inbred but that women who have that special link to childhood sometimes retain that strain of determination that enables them to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to push forward for uh for 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 childbirth and in order to maintain their belief and their faith yeah in that yeah, you know, I think that there are there are probably a number of women who can be spoken about there regarding their role as mothers, but I think also um let let's sort of talk about women who fulfill other roles uh that are not necessarily uh, motherhood roles. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I would I would just go back to what we were talking about previously, which is, you know, uh when Rachel first turns to Yaakov and these are her first words in the story, right? Havali banivim ein meta anochi right, where she says, you know, give me children or I am dead. It's really very startling that in the next Pasuk, the response is, Vayichar af Yaakov Rachel. right? Yaakov becomes very angry at Rachel. And that seems to be a bit of a harsh response. You know, he says, right, and my, instead of God, did I prevent you from having children? But there's a really um, oft-quoted Akeda Itzchak there. Akeda Itzchak is Rav Yitzchak Arama, a Spanish 15th century exegete. And people love to quote, he's not the most well-known exegete, but this is probably his most well-known piece. Necham Leibowitz quotes him on this pasuk in asking why... She, she, by the way, is the one who brought him back in fashion. Yeah. Yeah, I think people really didn't talk about him for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Although, um, you know, he certainly is connected to the Abarbanel, right? The Abarbanel yeah. became more popular than him, but... Yeah. Um, they were, you know, colleagues and, and, and peers. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of, uh, how he explained this, he said, why is Yaakov angry at Rachel? Because he said, we learn from the first woman, uh, who is called both Chava and Isha, that she has, that every woman has two separate and distinct roles. One is to be Aim Kolchai. One is in her motherhood, in her ability to, uh, you know, bear, bear children to produce the next generation to bring about continuity and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and devote herself to that. And the other is to be an Isha, which is an individual, a person in her own right. Not every woman is blessed with fertility, right? But every woman has the obligation to search for the I, right? The Isha part of her, the part of her, which is, um, her looking, broader identity yeah. of of what she contributes to the world, her spiritual identity. You know, it mm. really it, it's a idea that I think is a great precursor 
to what Rav Soloveitchik writes about in Family Redeemed or in Hebrew, it's Ishu Veto, uh, where he has an, an essay there about what he calls redeemed parenthood, which we won't go into the details of, but I'll just say that in that essay, he really expands this idea about the dual role of parents, both as being a spiritual parent and a biological parent. And he really expands it to both men and women in a, in a really moving way. I recently taught it to students and I was really just reminded about how Really, it's a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal essay. So I'll put in there a little, a little plug. I'll put it in the show notes also if I can find a PDF of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's a really a great reminder about the fact that certainly women have have other roles to fill. I think the most blatant, unexpected role we have is the role of Dvora. Okay, of Dvora, who in uh, in Sefer Shoftim in Perak Dalid uh, is fulfilling a role that is also multifaceted, but it is certainly not a role as a mother. Um, she is uh, she is noted to be a wife of, although we, it's you know a lot of uh, a lot of you know sort of guesswork about who who. Uh, who Lapidot. Lapidot is. Um, well, so uh, Chazal actually say Eishet Lapidot just means a fiery woman yeah, and not wife was, of a person. Right, named she was Lapidot. a charismatic, exactly. She was yeah. a charismatic woman, which is a great, I think a great, uh, a great comment here. Um, but she's introduced to us in the beginning of, uh, of Perk Dalid, in Pasuk Dalid, Udvora Isha Nevi'a Eshet Lapidoti, Shofta at Yisrael Be'etahi. Okay, she was a Shofetet. Now, it's important to note because the word Shofet in Sefer Shoftim doesn't necessarily mean to adjudicate in, the, in a court of law, but it, it sort of means a military leader or some sort, of, some sort of charismatic leader. But in the case of Dvorah, she actually fulfilled that role. She was actually an adjudicator in a court of law. And we don't have any other examples like that in Sefer Shoftim. I mean, it, it's surprising also within the specific culture of, of Sefer Shoftim. Um, and she would sit there, she had her spot where people came to meet her, um, to, to meet her and ask for her, uh, her legal advice. Uh, and they would go and meet her there. Now, she, her relationship, and again, we're not going to do a whole analysis of the narrative here, but she has both the legal side to her personality. And of course, she also has the, the prof, the prophetess side of her personality, which is also unique within the book of, of Shoftim, where not all of the leaders are necessarily, uh, prophets in that way. Um, and the truth is that throughout the narrative, she really, em- the narrative emphasizes her role as prophetess. I would say, and I, I believe is, is the greater emphasis of the narrative. When Barak comes to, uh, to recruit, to recruit her for the war effort, um, she makes it very clear to him, and we later learn that it's a sort of a double entendre for what will happen later in the story. But she says, Haloch elech imach, um, efes kiloti etefartacha la derech, asherata olech kibiad isha, biad isha imkor adonayat sisra. Um, and she says to him that, you know, if I go with you, then you you won't get any of the glory, right? And there's this interesting dynamic between her and Barak where he needs her to feel confident, most likely because of her role as prophetess. Um, but she says, you know, but if I go with you, you aren't going to get the credit for it. Um, and there are a number of ways to understand that pasuk, but by the time you get to the end of the narrative, you also realize that it's referring to the role of Yael, okay? That he's not the one who, in fact, who will uh, who will vanquish Sisra, but it, it will be Yael herself, um, but Dvorah's involvement in the war effort, she's not uh, a soldier in the war, but she is directing its, uh, its movement and, uh, and, and directing Barak when he should and where he should, uh, attack. And so Dvorah in that, in that, uh, in that narrative 
is very, very significant. And of course, we have the song that comes after where she also um, scolds some of the tribes for not coming in, coming in the war effort. And she clearly was a very, very central leader during that time. And that war itself also was a very significant war um, between all the, the neighboring nations. And her role there is beyond, you know, what we would have expected for women, certainly throughout mo- much of Sefer Shoftim. And of course, she's partnered with Yael, where her being Israelite, Yael not being Israelite, who are coming together to, to create this tremendous victory for Am Yisrael. Yeah, no, so I mean, I think she's a, a really important example of a woman who is being presented in a really different sort of role in, in, um, in the Tanakh. Um, another woman who I think is also presented this way. And I would say, you know, there, the, the, there's all sorts of different, uh, roles that, that women assume in Tanakh. I think it's also significant to note that Dvorah is sort of part of this triangle of women in the two prakim that include her role in Sefer Shoftim of both Dalid and Hay of the narrative and the song afterward, that she is the judge and the prophetess. And you have Yael, who is the, I, I think when you read that part of the narrative carefully, she is a mother in that she seduces Sisera in order to kill him through milk and through covering him. But there also are some sensual innuendos that show up in that, in that, uh, in treatment for him to come into her tent. Uh, and then you have M. Sisera who comes up in the next, uh, in the next song in the parak after who is comforted by a very negative thoughts about her son. And so we sort of see there's a, a mother depiction of MC Sra and there's Yael who I think borders on, on two different identities as women, but both of those deeply contrast Vora who is called uh, MB Israel in the song after that. But in the narrative itself, she really doesn't fulfill that role. I think she just becomes this unbelievably powerful figure who, you know, is, is lives in the consciousness of, 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 of the people of Israel, but her role is not by virtue of the children that she has. It's by virtue of her of her spiritual power, and by um, and also by her her wit, right? Her wit and her and her wisdom. Yeah. I think another woman that I would definitely um, also characterized in her own independent role, or I should say, you know, not particularly in her role as mother, is Avigail, who is presented as wife of, but even before she's presented as wife of, we're told about her that she is tovat sechel vifat tar. She is both very wise, right? She is good of, of, you know, sechel, which means, you know, that also her, her, her success and also her wisdom. And she's also beautiful. Um, and the story itself really is, it revolves around her, right? Because the story itself is the story of, uh, her husband who's very evil and, uh, refuses to, uh, help out David in the Midbar in, when David is running away from Shaul in the desert. We're talking about in Shmuel Aleph Parrot Cafe. And, um, you know, David feels that Naval has betrayed him and maybe also disrespected him, which I think is very much indicated in the story that he's disrespected him. And David, who is our Admoni, and in some ways reminds us, I think we talked about this, if we spoke about mirror characters, which I'm not sure we did, but David is a mirror of Esav, right? They're both these ruddy characters who also have 
a temperament that is a little bit hot-headed. And like Esav, David sets out with 400 men in order to, um, in order to avenge himself on Naval. And Avigail gets, gets wind of this and she goes out to stop him. And it's extraordinary because why does she stop him? Does she stop him because she loves Naval and she doesn't want him to be killed? No, definitely not. Right. So she stops him because she cares about David and she cares about his future. And she makes, I think, one of the extraordinary speeches of, you know, I would say of anybody in Tanakh, but certainly of a woman in Tanakh. Although there are a few others that make some really powerful speeches. Rachav Hazona, who, you know, we haven't spoken about in Yoshua Perakbet, also makes a really long and really interesting speech. But here we have this really incredible speech by Avigail, where basically she says to David, you know, um, you have to guard yourself from doing anything impetuous because you want to come to kingship with a, a clean slate. You don't want to come to kingship through bloodshed. And, um, and she makes this speech. It starts in, um, Pasuk Kafdalid, right? And it concludes in Pasuk Lamed Aleph, right? So from verse 24 through verse 31. And it's, uh, it's really, I think, a very powerful speech, a very persuasive speech. It's also a very intelligent speech, uh, you know, very intelligently, uh, presented, uh, such that David immediately responds to Avigail, right? He says, Baruch Hashem, Eloke Israel, Asher Shlachei Chayom Azelikrati. Blessed is God who sent you today to greet me. Right? Blessed is your motivation. And, and you are blessed. You have prevented me today from coming to, to bloodshed. Right. And, and therefore you have maintained this path towards kingship, which is a righteous path, which is a path that shows that my kingship is going to be a different sort of kingship, one that uh, also weaves in a very strong sense of faith in God and uh, a path towards service of God and service of community and not service of my own uh, needs passions. or passions, exactly. And so, you know, even though David does marry Abigail at the end of the story, she pretty much is no longer an important figure. You know, as a wife, she doesn't really play a very significant mo- role. I kind she of always feel like it was him bringing her on staff. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, like he felt like she was, she was so wise and she, you know, also the, 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 the confidence for Avigail to come, who was living, by the way, not in, in a hard scenario with a very harsh husband, but to have that sense of self to go to David and to let, you know, and ha- she had a sense of who he was and who he was going to be, obviously. And to have the, the, I want to say the, the gall, or, but she really had the courage to come to David and tell him, be careful. You're about to go down a bad path. I mean, that's a really powerful personality. And so when he marries her at the end, I, I always, they, I, A, there's a kindness because she doesn't have a husband anymore. And David realizes that he had a part in that, in that process. Right. Deval dies, not, not by David's hand. Yes, I don't know he, if we mentioned right, that. Right. He of the dies, story. but not God by David's hand. Him. Yeah. Um, and so you, it's, it's a kindness in the part of David. He doesn't want her to be left alone because a woman alone in those times was, you know, economically very, very difficult. But I also feel like there's a part of it being like, you, I want you on my staff. Now we don't, we don't see her again. So we don't know if he ever asked her for advice, but that's sort of what 
always how I feel when I read the end of that story. Yeah. And she does have a child. She has a Chilav. Yes. But we, we know absolutely nothing about him. So there's no doubt that Avigail's role is not primarily focused on, on, on motherhood. I don't think it's primarily focused on wifehood either. As you said, there's not, this isn't a love story. This seems to be a story of uh, mutual respect. Right. She does a chesed with him by saving him from a big mistake. And then he does a chesed with her because he knows that she's alone. I, I might take it away from the uh, exact area of chesed and talk about respect. I think there's a lot of respect. I liked your, your, your phrasing, you know, took, he brought her on staff. Um, he clearly respects her. He wants her by his side because of her great wisdom, because of her great resourcefulness, because of her, um, you know, persuasiveness and, and, and because she sees with great clarity. His role. I mean, let's not forget that at this point in the story, he's a fugitive, right? And there's been no great announcement. David has taken over and Shaul has been rejected. This is her, you know, understanding something from her deep wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, uh, great example. I think, uh, another great example of a woman who, you know, lives in our eternal consciousness of us and the entire world, of course, is also a stare. Now, we're not going to, you know, analyze the entire Megillah here, but Esther undergoes a fundamental transition in the story. Uh, she begins as one of the many, as one of the the herd who's coming, and Esther's initial presentation is part of the, I think, the general very negative depiction of women in, in Megillah to stare, who are treated really in an inhumane way. And it starts with Vashti. And then we have all the women being gathered uh, and sort of this, you know, Miss, uh, Miss Universe contest. And, uh, and so she initially gets to the palace because of, of a purely physical aspect of herself. Um, and, you know, we have questions. Why, why is it that she sort of involves herself? Did she have a choice? Was she able to not become part of that, of that competition? Um, but she gets there and, and is successful in, you know, finding favor, uh, in the eyes of Achashirosh. But her character really undergoes its main transition in Perak Dalid in, uh, in Megillat Esther, uh, where Mordechai is the one who has to, you know, push her forward and convince her that she is there for a purpose. Um, and that while she initially was in that passive role, as it seemed women were treated, certainly in that society, um, but, but Mordechai comes to her and lets her know that, you know, you have the ability to play a central role in, in the, in the Jewish destiny right now. And you can ignore that possibility. Um, and if you do, God will find another way to make that happen. But, but just know the opportunity is, is, is right here, right here, you know, a, a hand's, a hand's breath away. And from that point in Perak Dalid, which is also read with a great, uh, tune, we read Megillat Esther. Okay, that if you are if you are silent now, right, God will find another way to save the people. There's sort of a, a double edged sword, I think, always in what Mordechai says to her. Um but uh but just know that you, right, you and your and your household will actually perish. Meaning, if there will be salvation, it won't be now. Meaning, right, this is the opportunity for this generation. Maybe, maybe help will come at another time. But the the answer is right now in your hands. And it's from this point that Esther really undergoes a great transition. 
and, and becomes a much more active character. Um, and her role in, in saving the people and working with Mordechai, um, both in the military realm, uh, to a certain degree later on in, in, uh, in the last few prakim of, of, uh, Megillat Esther, but also in an unbelievably sophisticated political role where she's able to uncover plots, is able to frame Haman in the way he needs to be framed so that Hashirosh will understand the, um, the magnitude of what he's tried to, what he's tried to do. Um, but her role is of political prowess and, you know, and teamwork, tremendous teamwork with Mordechai. Uh, and she's a role, a role model in so many ways, but it, it's definitely not in that other realm, uh, uh, that we, that we've spoken about. Interestingly, though, Chazal try and fill in those parts a little bit. They fill in, um, you know, that she was perhaps married to Mordechai. Uh, they fill as other Midrashim that talk about the children that she had with Achashverosh, um, and how it connects with other books. But, and those are really interesting, um, additions to the character of Esther and and how she played into the dynasties and the the continuation of the generations but her role in Megillat Esther is certainly one of uh, of another nature yeah and great courage I, I think even you know, you emphasized a lot the teamwork with Mordechai I think that there's also great courage at going at it alone because at the end of the day this is her plot and it's her summoning up her kind of you know regal courage, right? Batil Bash Esther Malchut. And then she becomes this extraordinarily important and powerful figure who, you know, saves her people. And, you know, and, and one could even argue saves the people of Shushan in general. So yeah, Esther, I think is really, uh, she also may be the example or, you know, an example of one of those characters who, as you said, undergoes an extraordinary transformation. She's not a static character. She's extremely dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Let's turn our attention for a minute to Rifka. Um, Rifka is, um, you know, we meet her in the story uh, with the Evid Avram, right? With the, the servant of Avram who is coming to find uh, a, a wife for Yitzchak. And he does find Rifka at the well. And she strikes us as being a very dynamic figure. Uh, immediately, as soon as we see her at the well, and she's really in all the well stories, it's always the man who draws the water except in the Rifka story. So it really stands out that she's a very active figure. But I would say there's something interesting about the way that Rifka is being presented in this story that I I would want to, you know, draw your attention to, which again, I think really gives us a sense of the um, the different kinds of ways that women are being described in, in the different stories. Um, you know, and, and certainly later on, Rifka is going to be a very important mother figure, right? Mother of... Yaakov and Esav and primarily how she functions to make sure that the bracha goes to, to Yaakov and not to, to Esav. Um, but you know, in the story where we first meet her, she's very active. She's very dynamic. She's filled with, um, kindness, with chesed, with compassion. She's drawing the water for the hungry and thirsty travelers. Um, and the camels, of course. 
And she's running, she's running, but to my hair, but tarots, right? She's very, very busy. She's behaving with, you know, great alacrity. Very in tune with the needs of others, I always feel like. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there, but there are two other things that I would mention with regard to Rifka and the story. And that is that afterwards, when the Eved comes in to talk to her father and her brother, so, you know, they're kind of hemming and hawing, and they say, Nikralanara. Vinishalat piha. Let's call the girl, right? Which is also, I think, an interesting yeah. thing that she has agency. She here. has that presence in her house that they want to call her and ask her. Yeah. yeah, and so they call her and they ask her, "Will you go with this man?" And she says one word, "Elech," right? Which is the way we answer in the affirmative in Tanakh, right? That you don't say yes, but you repeat the verb, right? She says, "I will go." Right. I will go. And the, the, the last point that I wanted to make with regard to Rifka's character and the way that it's described here is that, you know, when she arrives back in Canaan, so Yitzchak is standing in the Sadeh. According to Chazal, he's davening, right? It says here, right? He goes out in evening time. Chazal talk about him davening mincha. And we're told, he lifts up his eyes and he sees there are camels coming. And the very next Pasuk tells us, She lifts up her eyes and sees Yitzchak. And that causes her to fall off of her camels. And so she has sight. We don't know exactly what it is that she sees and what it is that strikes her there that causes her to dismount or, or somehow, you know, uh, lose balance. Uh, lose balance or, right. There is something that, that, that I think is the right description. But there are four things that we see here about Rifka. She has chesed, she has alacrity, she has elech, and she has sight. Who is Rifka? Rifka's Avraham, right? Avraham is all the time described as Vayarots, Vayimaher, right? He's always rushing around, and of course, he becomes the 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 image of Chesed, right? Welcoming people and guests into his tent, and he's the one that has Lech Lecha, right? That has the ability. Again, they make the same journey, even right from the house of Nachor, from Haran to Eretz Canaan, but it's a journey which is a, a journey into the unknown, right? It's the journey into the absurd, what Kierkegaard calls the spontaneous leap into the absurd, right? So she has that lech lecha, and she has sight. And and I think what we see here about Rifka is that, you know, we want to continue Avraham, right? We want to continue the family of Avraham. But Avraham, more than anything else, is a visionary. And Yitzchak is chosen I think because he he's not a visionary, because his vision isn't forward-looking, but it's backward-looking. He's looking backward at Abraham, trying to continue Abraham, which is his role. He is the Ish Masoret, right? He is the person who's looking backward in order to continue, which is how one continues a visionary. But the danger, of course, of not being a visionary, and of course, we're told that Yitzchak doesn't have you know vision, doesn't have vision, is that you could wind up maybe not looking forward enough and thereby giving the blessing to the wrong son. Um, and Rifka is placed here as this Avram-like figure in the household. And, you know, so that you create this kind of really strong combination between the one who continues Avram by looking backward 
and the one who continues Avram by looking backward and the one who can continue Avram by, you know, making sure that you were also forward looking. So in this sense, I think Rifka is, she certainly is in a maternal role. There's no question about it that a, a, a large part of who she is is meant to then produce the next generation. Wife, wife mother. Yeah. But as a, a character, she's developed in this, I think, really very, um, you know, very important way. And in a way that reminds us of, you know, Bereshit's most memorable figure. I mean, arguably most memorable figure, but, yeah. you know, Avram really, you know, he looms large over Amisrael's story and Rifka is so similar to him. I think also, that's a really beautiful idea. I think also it's worth mentioning her her role as wife because her role as wife is also like the most, I think the most moving portrayal that we have of like that brief moment where you have a window into the relationship between Yitzchak and Rivka. Um, you know, the word, uh, the verb ahav is not necessarily used in that active sense in most other places. Uh, and also the correlation, I mean, you bring up that she reminds of Avraham and the story, you know, brings up that she's, she reminds him of his mother. So, you know, she sort of brings in, she is the imago for anyone who knows that reference. She is the, the imago or the image of his parents brought into his life. So I, for me, after the initial creation of woman in Breshit Perik, um, Aleph and Bet, I, for me, th- that's like the most moving, you know, intimate moment between husband and wife is there between Yitzhak and Rivka. So to me, it also brings a different, a different flavor to who she is as a wife, which of course later on doesn't necessarily continue in that same sense. But you're saying that she is a mother and she is a wife, but we are supposed to note that there's a tremendous vision and and a broader thinking that Rivka brings to those roles that's unique to Rivka. Yeah, I think so. That's a beautiful idea also about Yitzchaka um, and and Rivka reminding him of Sarah. I mean, it's a beautiful pasuk. Um, you know, later on, their their relationship becomes somewhat complicated yeah. by how different they are and yeah. how differently they 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 try to uh, continue Avraham. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a. It's, it's, it's definitely what I was trying to say is that, you know, she becomes almost this individual who is very sharply drawn. Um, and it's those traits that she wants to use in her, in her motherhood, which is true about, I think, you know, part of what motherhood is, is people using their strengths and their character that they've been building in order to enhance their ability to help their children become adults and, you know, well-functioning people. I'm into that, Yael. There's <laughs> Ratashim. Um, but uh, so just uh, to end today's episode, you know, we've really seen a number of, uh, of female protagonists of women in Tanakh that fulfill all different roles. The the axis of of mother, of wife, mother is certainly a prominent role, but we've seen so many examples of women who also are not at all defined uh, as that. And there are many others examples uh, to check out as well. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Studies. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. 
You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.